Hello and welcome to the Mindful Men podcast, the show helping men to open up about manhood. My name is Simon Rennie and my aim is to get men talking. From mental health to fatherhood and everything in between, Mindful Men creates a safe space for conversation. Now, before we get into this episode, I want to say a huge thank you for joining me. It means a world for you to join me and talk about men's issues. And if you love what you hear, please subscribe and share the episode with your mates. You can also join the conversation on Instagram and YouTube, and I'd love to connect with you there. But for now, sit back, relax, and let's get mindful. G'day guys, and welcome to another episode of the Mindful Men Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Rennie, and today we're getting mindful about kids' mental health and mindfulness as well. And joining me for that discussion, I've got Marianne Eve. How are you going, Marianne? Good, Simon. Thanks for having me. No worries. Thanks for being here. And and you're from the outer north of Melbourne. When you say outer north, like how far out of out of Melbourne are you? Look, probably about an hour out of the CBD. So outer north, it's still very suburban. I'm in a gross corridor, so lots of new estates and sort of new families. So it's a very kind of growing up and coming area, but kind of on the edge of Melbourne. Yeah, awesome. And you're a mental health social worker and a private practice owner, and you've got Mindful Life Wellness. Yes. Wonderful. We'll explore all this today and I'm really keen to unpack both the social work component and your private practice. But before we get started, I'd just like to hear a bit about you and like, you know, where did you grow up? Did you grow up in the outer north of Melbourne or have you got family? Have What's some of those key life events that have kind of led you towards where you are today? Sure. So I grew up in New South Wales, lived uh, in New South Wales till I was about 14 raised by a single mum so I do have um, you know a bit of a trauma poverty history grew up in housing estates in public housing moved to Melbourne as a teenager and didn't finish high school went on to work I guess for a little while then did a youth work course Um, so sort of started in youth work oh god about 28 years ago so showing my age now and from youth work sort of went into disability child protection, drug and alcohol, and then as a mature age student, started my social work degree at 28 and then the crazy, made the crazy decision to have two babies while I was completing my social work degree. So I've been with my husband since we were 18, a very long time, Um, and as I said, had my babies when I was completing my social work degree. I guess stayed in the helping profession after completing my social work degree working in various um, organisations and then started my private practice in 2011. Wow, bit of a journey. I edited mental health social worker in 2011 and it really just feels like yesterday. It's crazy. So it was very part-time to begin with because I had two small children and I was doing other work. So, you know, as you probably know, when lots of people go into private practice, they, I suppose, have their real pay job. So I was doing sort of, um, you know, on salary, I suppose, working for different agencies and just dabbling in private practice initially and then moved into full-time private practice, which was very scary. So I admire you, um, you know, doing that um, so early in the piece. I did that in 2017, sort of went more full-time into private practice and just basically, you know, rented a room back then and then opened my clinic last year so 2021 right in the middle of the pandemic 
which was a bit crazy, it delayed it being built and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's that's been fantastic. So rebranded from being, I guess, just a sole trader to having a business called Mindful Life Wellness. And I guess in amongst all of that, I've got two kids, two adult kids, 18-year-old and 22-year-old. And I very foolishly bought a puppy last year. I thought I'm going to get a therapy puppy. So I bought a puppy last year and so she's been recently trained to come into the clinic and provide therapy to um, adults and kids as well. So yeah, busy, busy stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'd love to unpack your, your childhood a bit more before we get into the private oh. practice stuff. And then you, you said that like you come from a bit of a trauma upbringing. Can you describe for like what you mean by trauma? Um, well, I guess raised by a single mum, um, there's a history of family violence and my mum had drug and alcohol issues. I had much older siblings who left when I was very young, so it was just my mum and I for a long time. So lots of poverty. You know, mum did the best she could at the time and I guess when you become a professional helper yourself, it puts things in perspective. She did the best she could under circumstance, the circumstances, you know, she was living through. So um, she had her own trauma history. So, yeah, I guess just lots of, you know, poverty and neglect uh, growing up as a child and I suppose that made me want to do better be better help others you know all that sort of stuff which I know sounds very cliche but I guess I quickly understood my way out of it all was to um, you know work hard and study even though I didn't complete year 12 Um, but (laughs) I suppose I understood you know bigger picture that I'd be able Mm. to you know, study or, or work hard or do better. I had a sister who I have a sister who's 10 years older than me. So she was a bit of an example. She was a nurse and she did really well for herself. She left home very young. So yeah, I suppose she was a role model and yeah, just worked hard, I guess, you know, started working as, you know, a 17 year old in childcare and then went on to do my youth work degree from there. So I, I learned that that was the way out and helping others, I think, you know, as I'm sure you you know and understand it's it gives you so much satisfaction mm. and wanting you know to make it better you know for others you don't want them to go through I guess what you've been through or you use your own life experience as well and then in 2009 my family and I lived through the uh, King Lake like Saturday bushfires so there's mm. sort of that another layer of trauma on top of that as well we didn't lose a house or anything like that but we we lost a lot of friends and my children were very young they were four and eight. So my children were very traumatised and I was working in mental health, clinical mental health at the time with CAMS and so that's child and adolescent mental health and they went in and did the recovery work. So it was really hard. I had to end up leaving that role, which was really quite sad because I loved it, but it was just there was no escaping, you know, the trauma, I guess. So what was some of the impact for someone who has who wasn't around those bushfires? And I remember seeing them on TV, but yeah. like being there on the ground, what was it like, like oh. living through it? It was like a war zone. You know, we fled um, with our kids and we would have been safe to, to stay, but we didn't know because, you know, the messages weren't getting through. There was, it was a long time ago, sort of 13 years ago. So I guess internet and communication was very different back then, but we fled um, to a nearby uh, safe town um, and we weren't allowed back in for two weeks. But my husband went back in to kind of secure our property because there were looters and all that sort of stuff. But when we did go back in, it was like a war zone. You know, it was just they couldn't clean up because it was a crime scene. So there was forensics in there, white suits, and my children's school and childcare centre burnt down. So we had no school, no childcare, and I was off work, obviously caring for the kids, and the kids were severely traumatised. And so, yeah, it was hard. It was really, really hard. And, you know, then losing, you know, 
it was like 30 funerals we had to attend. Mm. So, you know, all friends and whole families and then explaining that to the kids. So, yeah, it was hard, but there was a lot of help, which was good, a lot of some, a lot of support. Um, yeah. took a long time to sort of get back on our feet. And I would say even 13, 14 years later, the, the effects are still felt. Yeah. Um, you're seeing it in, in adults and in teens that were babies at the time. You know, as you know, trauma can take a long time to manifest itself. Yeah. How did you help your kids through it? Well, look, you know, love and support, but look in hindsight and you've got to have self-compassion, but I feel like I didn't do a very good job, to be honest, because I was dealing with my own mm. trauma. So I guess I just did the best that I could. I was just there for them. But my youngest in particular, she was um, very, very affected. She was four, so she wasn't sleeping. And so, yeah, obviously I had my social work hat off and my mum hat on, so I feel like I didn't do the best job at the time. But, you know, I guess you just do, you know, you just do what you can, mm. you know, with what you've got, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. And I think we can often beat ourselves up as parents yeah. who are also in the helping professions as well. Yeah. Like we think we need to have it all, all the answers and it all sorted out. But even if you don't even work in the helping profession, as parents, we try to be that perfect parent. But I think, and we'll get to yeah. a bit later and around strategies for parenting, you know, children who are going through a bit of a challenge. It's, yeah. I think we need to just give ourselves a bit of a break because, you know, as you're saying, like whole families were going through this, not just kids. Yeah. Parents right. were trying to figure it out. Grandparents were trying to figure it out. The community was trying to figure out, like, work through it. And it's very traumatizing. I remember seeing it on TV. That was the one where they did all that massive, um, that comedian did all that financial charity aid, did she? Was that that, that bushfire? No, I think that was, um, that might have been New South Wales. So it's, it's 14 years ago. But look, there were things like the Wiggles coming up yeah, yeah. like you you wouldn't know the area so king lake is a mountain community so it's only about half an hour from here but you need to go up the mountain and basically it's yeah look it's it's a bit of a journey and it's you, you're going up a windy hill around and it's a very isolated so we had the wiggles come up we had john farn and we had shane warne and we had you know um mcdonald's trucks and kfc trucks and lots of celebrities and but look it was brilliant the army set up like a, a food tent so we didn't have to cook dinner for about four months we could just go to the army tent every night to get our dinner so that was great so the kids loved that can we go can we go to the army tent and get dinner i was like yeah great i'm not cooking dinner because <laughs> you just didn't want to get up go off the mountain you just i don't yeah. know i get trauma you just shut down and you can't do the basic stuff sometimes so it was great that the government recognized that and they just stuck the army up there making us dinner yeah. <laughs> something as simple as that was just brilliant you know no dishes no shopping to do and you know nothing to have to worry about cooking so yeah and it also brings I guess the community together in a, in a public yeah. space where they can connect and and you know help each other through that kind of moment as well exactly. I imagine. and you know kids playing together and yeah it was brilliant before we get into the social work, I love to hear, I love talking to parents because I'm a, I'm a dad myself. I've got a, a five and a two-year-old. And oh, so you're in mean? the peak now, aren't you? <laughs> we are. I just got back from school drop-off and yeah. the day started nicely and then it turned really bad for about half an hour that it went good oh. and well. So we've had it all just this morning. <laughs> but what does it mean to you to be a mum? What does it mean for me to be a mum? Oh, everything. I, I feel like I was put on this earth to be a mum and that's just my opinion I know that's not for every woman or every parent but I feel like I was put on this earth to be a parent to be a mum and everything else is just extra and my kids are 18 and 22 and I cry when I look at those baby photos I just want that time back 
So I hear you saying how busy and crazy it is. Please don't wish their lives away like I did. Mm. It's just the best time when they're little and they just look up to you and they love you and want to kiss and cuddle you because once they're teenagers, they just don't want a bar of you. <laughs> but, you know, having said that, my kids are still my world and, you know, they mean everything to me. And my my 22-year-old is doing, guess what, a social work degree. <laughs> well, wonderful. She's actually just uh, halfway through her first placement. So she's doing master's in social work and she's doing it at Northern Health, which is just a branch of um, the local hospital. So she's got a fantastic placement in um, aged care. So she's loving it. So she's sort of coming home and talking all about cognitive deficits and dementia and you know all that sort of stuff. So it's so interesting. It's stuff that I've never, you know, I guess it's not a field of practice that I've ever dabbled in aged, you know, the aged um aged care stuff so yes yeah, so so proud and then my other daughter is doing a body piercing apprenticeship yeah. so it's very different <laughs> um so we're really really proud of her as well so yeah they're my world they mean everything to me and I guess you know when I look back at my childhood I feel like I have gained a lot of healing through becoming a mum don't always get it right on the first to say that and you know I know I probably bring you know a lot of my childhood in at times you can't help I think you try not to do that but you know we all become our parents in a way or bring in stuff that we're not proud of or but again you've got to have that self-reflection and compassion I suppose is there a certain part of like motherhood that's like comes to mind whenever you when you think about being a mum like with your daughters like the first day of school or was it childbirth or was it yeah probably, um, probably anything in those first couple of years and yeah just still the quality time you get to spend with them and forget about the housework forget about all that other stuff like just yeah being present being with them and uh, we did a lot of that we were very you know hands-on we went to the zoo and you know the farm and lots of I guess all that sort of quality time lots of family holidays and um and then they just turn into teenagers and they're just alien to you so do they come back around in adulthood well funny you should say that about <laughs> 19 and they get to about 19. 19 so my 18 year old she's just turned 18 so she, she's kind of coming around so you know she's working she's finished school and stuff so yeah, so the 22-year-old, yeah, it's very, she's a little adult and sometimes she parents us, I think. So. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, my, my two-year-old's doing that at the moment, my five-year-old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny, my, the 22-year-old is doing this social work degree. She kind of pulls me up on stuff. Mom, you can't that. I'm like, oh, I qualified like 19 years ago. Like things must have changed. So, you know, she's <laughs> giving me a bit of accountability, like, you know. So. It's like a bit of internal uh, supervision. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. She actually works when she does my admin, which I'm missing because she's on placement. She hasn't done admin for me now for months. <laughs> but yeah, so she's usually my Friday admin person, which is great. Love it, love it. So um, I'd love to hear why social workers get into social work particularly. I know you've got your, your upbringing. Mm. But what, what was the moment where you go, I'm going to go study social work and then become a social worker? I don't know, I guess when I learnt that it's more about the individual, the social worker looks at so many other aspects, you know, the connection as well, like I'm all about connection, attachment, so all of that that sort of stuff. And I guess that there's so many fields of practice that you can go into. You know, as my daughter was saying when she, she completed an um, arts degree in legal studies and sociology, and she said every single job I've looked at wants social work. Mm. So she said, 
whether you want to be a counsellor or whether you want to work in youth justice or, you know, anywhere really as a helper, they want social work. So I guess I just knew it was such a broad field of practice. And being a youth worker, I started as a youth worker. It was kind of the next logical step. And yeah, within, I reckon within, I don't know, a month of lectures, I thought this is for me. I mean, there's a lot of boring stuff. Because it was an undergraduate degree. So first year was very boring, which I think is very different to a master's. If you do a master's, keep in mind, I studied a long time ago. If you do a master's, I think you just do the two years post. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, So I guess undergraduate was your four years and the first two years are just boring. But there's a lot of good stuff too, of course. But, um, yeah, just within a couple of months or a month or so of lectures, I thought this is what I want to do. And you did that as a mature age student? Yes, I was 28 um, yeah. going into lectures with like 18 year olds who talked and you're like I'm here to learn <laughs> so yeah I'd be sitting up the front all studious and yeah heavily pregnant like the whole degree like I was pregnant pretty much because I had both my babies in that time so deferred a couple of times it took me seven years to complete <laughs> yeah yeah. But I worked along the way, so that was fine. So my first placement, I got a job out of it and um, continued working there till I had my baby and then my second placement, I got a job as well. So, yeah, just none of it. No, I enjoyed studying while I was pregnant. It was hard, but, yeah. Yeah. How was it studying and navigating family life? Because I, I did the same. So when I started in 2018, I did the ma- straight into the master's program and yeah. I we I think our son Gus he was one at the time and then halfway through we had Pippa as well and and yeah. just navigating life as a parent but also I had my nine to five that I was working as well mm-hmm. so I was doing all this part time and and stuff it was really difficult so how did you manage it Yeah the same as you I'm sure like it was really really hard um, I mean both kids were in childcare fortunate my husband has his own business so he could be flexible with his hours. And obviously financially he supported me, but I was like you, I pretty much worked as much as I could around being pregnant, having babies and studying. But, um, yeah, childcare was my absolute friend um, mm. from a young age with kids. And I studied part-time. So whilst it took a long time, um, you know, to knock the degree over, studying part-time was the way I had to go. But, look, the placements, as you know, are a challenge because they're, what are they, 500 hours each time and you're just like, mm. oh, God, like this is just, I don't know how anyone does it without any financial support. So, yeah, it was hard and kids, as you know, kids get sick. Um, so I think I had days off placement that I had to make up at the end and, you know, when you're going through it, you're like, oh, God, is this worth it? Is it ever going to end? But I, I, <laughs> I look back and I say it was so worth it because here I am at 50 you know, I started my own practice at 40, um, sort of similar to you, I suppose. And now at 50, you know, I've got this thriving practice that, you know, is doing so well. And yeah, the sky's the limit. I'd never go back to working for someone else because the freedom, as you know, the freedom of private practice is just incredible. Yeah. And I'm only a few months into my private practice and, yeah. and I'm feeling that freedom already, like, oh. and very similar, like, yeah, I don't know if I could go back and work for somebody That's else. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Things in between clients, you know, dropping kids off or doing, you know, whatever you have to do an appointment yourself or, you know, Pilates next door to my clinic. I just go to Pilates between clients. <laughs> and <laughs> Nice. I go bug my wife. She'll work again at home as well. So I just go bug her. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, so what, I'm interested, like, why um, mental health social work? Why were you interested in working in this particular field? And, and more specifically, working with children as well? 
Well, look, I guess from from the degree, um, like I did a couple of years in community health and then I had someone from CAMS, um, you know, get in contact with me, a child and adolescent, I don't know if you use that acronym there. I yeah, think yeah. It's a bit of an outdated acronym and I don't think we use it here anymore, so I'm showing my age again, but child and adolescent mental health, someone approached me um, and asked if I was interested in applying for a job there. So I kind of fell into it. Um, so that was clinical mental health with kids and I was so green I had no idea and the psychiatrist made me cry probably three or four times <laughs> because I had no idea what I was doing so I was very much trained on the job you know two years out from uni and um, but you know I rose to the task I could write reports I could do assessments and all that sort of eventually and do therapy and I guess I just realized that there was such a gap and such a need for children's mental health um, and, you know, in reflection, I, as a kid, I probably had severe anxiety. Mm. And I didn't realise what, and I live with anxiety now, but I didn't realise even what anxiety was until, well, probably until I started my social work degree, really, sort of 18, 19 years ago. So, yeah, I guess I, I thought, well, look, you know, kids, there's so much help that's needed for kids. There's such gaps in services. And at the time I was living in King Lake, which is a rural community, and where I um, got the job at CAMS was rural as well. So, yeah, that passion for helping people who are isolated and rural. So kind of fell into that, which was a blessing because, as you know, you need to do two years clinical mental health before you can gain your accreditation to work mm. in private practice. Yeah. So it's just, you know, the universe, the stars aligned, someone was looking after me. I fell into that job, stayed there for a couple of years, and then from there moved into child protection, which was an incredible job where we walked the streets called Streetworks and we um, sought out missing kids, kids that were prostituting and got them back home. So we worked mm. with police, um, you know, resi units and stuff. Um, and then from there I thought I'm going to start a private practice. Child protection yeah. out a little bit and I thought I'll start a private practice. Um, and I guess just... I don't know, in liaising with GPs, I'd sort of talk about my CAMS experience and they kind of identified, well, you've got experience in working with kids and so it just kind of built from there. Mm. So whilst I wouldn't say I'm an expert or anything like that, like I think I've got the knowledge and the skills, you know, I, I kind of cut my teeth assessing kids working alongside a psychiatrist at CAMS. Um, so I learned a lot there. And then I also did two years on New South Wales Mental Health um, on their um, clinical mental health line, so assessment, crisis, that sort of stuff. So I did a bit more mental health there. So mental health sort of always been my passion, I suppose. Um, yeah. Yeah, my, my, you know, my mother had mental health issues, which I didn't really know or understand until, again until I become a social worker. Yeah. And I think a lot of that understanding yeah. came for me as well when I became yeah. a social worker is is like mental health's only been a real discussion in my household and for me and my part, my wife for the last 10 years, it's only been 10 yes. years since I went into that GP office and, and said, I think I've got mental health issues. So, um, and a lot came clear, it became clearer was during my social work studies, which was only you know, four years ago, three or four years ago yeah. now where I can go, okay, this is what mental health is. This is what mm -hmm. mental illness is. And this is the crossover between the two. Yeah. And this is, how I'm positioned in the world and how the world's impacting me as well. And it's only a relatively new discussion. I and mean, you're saying is it seems like a very new to you as well. Yeah. But I'm I'm interested like with your child protection work, like mm -hmm. as a as a dad myself, like 
child protection is the one place where I would love to work into it in, in that area. I think it would be interesting work, but I would never do it because I'm a dad. And the thought of, you know, children not being with their parents or experiencing trauma and abuse through through parents or, or their family life. Did that something that triggered you as a parent, like when you were Absolutely. working? Absolutely. Look, I think for many people, and I say this to my daughter because I think she's interested in child protection, and I don't like to put my experiences on other people, but I do feel like it can be a time-limited role. So I guess I went into child protection thinking if I last 12 months, I'll be happy. So I lasted two years, but it was very triggering. You know, we were working with kids who were in residential care, who had trauma histories. So I saw a lot of myself in these kids. Um, so that's it's difficult. And look, you know, child protection do the best they can. I think it's, I'm sure it's the same every state, but they're very strapped for resources. Mm. There wasn't a lot of supervision. I requested social work supervision. They just kind of looked blankly, blankly at me. <laughs> <laughs> didn't even know what that was. And so, you know, I didn't get a lot of supervision and support and working under the act is just debilitating. Like you just, there's so many restrictions and, and, you know, we were calling in warrants, you know, you see a kid calling a warrant, can't we talk to them first, please? Let, let us talk, try and get them back to their placement. Nah, they've been missing for a week, calling a warrant, get the police to pick them up. So a lot of it conflicted with my social work values and yes, absolutely triggering. I'd go home to my own kids and I'd think, God, I was just, you know, my daughter was 12, 13 at the time and I just picked up a 12, 13 year old sex worker, mm. you know, off so, yeah, you just think, God, oh, this could be my daughter, you know. Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, very. But then, you know, I guess it makes you so passionate and so willing to help and, and yeah, so I don't know, it's that double-edged sword, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I, I guess so, and even in the mental health space as well, like we, we can be really passionate about this stuff, but it also can be very triggering. And, and, yes. And, you know, particularly in the in the the private practice space do you like how much do you lean on an external supervisor to help you through some of those challenging discussions that you have yeah regular supervision is a must um and i have a colleague so i share um you know i have someone who rents one of my rooms in my clinic and she's a teacher but she's also a specialist autism educator so she helps me with a lot of my hard cases a lot of difficult kids and I help her out with some of the mental health stuff. So there's kind of that leaning on each other as a colleague. But, yeah, external supervision, absolutely, and understanding when, you know, transference is happening or counter-transference um, and just that self-reflection. I think the most important thing with social work is, you know, our reflective practice. Hmm. And that's what I love about social work. You know, we're always learning and we're always reflecting, you know, what can we do better, what could we have done differently, yeah, which I think is just brilliant that's that's um the most important thing i think yeah definitely now let's talk about private practice and, and what you do yeah. with with the the kids that walk through your door um as a dad working with kids can be extremely amazing <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but also extremely challenging as well like trying to get them to open up or yeah. or you know follow tasks and all that type of stuff and so tell us a bit about how you approach your practice with children and like and with it without identifying any private information about your yep. clients, like what's some of the broader trends? Like is it bullying? Is it climate change? Are any kids worried about climate change? Yeah, a lot, of the teens, sort of a lot of the teens. Yeah, my yeah. daughter talks, my 18-year-old talks a lot about climate change. It's a popular concern. 
So, look, yes, I work with kids uh, probably from as young as three right up to 17. Um, and the most predominant issue is anxiety. So since I opened my practice in 2011, I have been dealing with anxiety endlessly. And obviously after lockdowns, so as yeah. you're probably aware, you know, Melbourne had the longest and strictest lockdown of anywhere in the world anxiety has gone through the roof. So I'm seeing lots and lots of separation anxiety in kids, so kids not wanting to go to school mm. and lots of bedtime anxiety as well. And kids not wanting to do, you know, certain milestones, like not wanting to go on camp, not wanting to go to sleepovers or play dates um, and just really, um, you know, attached to parents as well. Yeah. So I guess the, in terms of the the way I work with these kids, Lots of parental involvement, so some parent coaching. The work is very gentle with kids. Like obviously with kids, you're not going to sit opposite, you know, in a chair opposite <laughs> each other and talk. I mean, some kids do want to do that, believe it or not. Like your 12, 13-year-olds do want to sit and have a chat. But I also have my program room. I've got my counselling room and my program room where I run Kids Mindfulness and mm. we can sit in there and we can draw, we can build we can you know play games we can play you know um, I can bring Tilly the therapy dog in so the therapy is very gentle I guess lots of hands-on stuff that sort of makes sense and then I also with my individual work I also inject a bit of the mindfulness stuff relaxation strategies mm -hmm. as well with kids and look kids at a primary school age what I try to do if, if it's appropriate I'll see them for two or three times and then I'll move them across to my group program if I feel that um it fits and yeah as I said earlier lots of parent coaching so teaching parents you know essentially the parent should be the child's therapist in a sense like I know they're not qualified or you know they haven't done the degree or whatever but you know you're with your child more than anyone else so if you've got the tools if someone can teach you what to do with your child at bedtime then obviously that's going to be far more helpful than me just working, you know, with the child. I think gone are the days in therapy where parents just push their kids through the door yeah. and say fix them. I mean, some parents still do do that, and I'm very clear at the outset that I need parental involvement because some kids come in, like when parents do push them through the door and you say, so how's your week been? Fine. So what are we working on today? I don't know. <laughs> and you're just like... <laughs> And then the parent will say to you, they'll email you at the end or something. So did he tell you that he punched his brother out, that he smashed a window, that he did this, that? And you're like, no. So, yeah, getting that feedback, which can be confronting, you know, parents coming in and talking about, you know, what kids have been up to. But I'm very upfront with kids and parents at the start. Yeah. way that it works. So I guess with anxiety, getting kids to understand what anxiety is all about, you know, teaching them all about fight or flight, you know, what's happening in their body, what the feelings mean. I guess I use that kind of narrative approach where I talk about anxiety being like a monster. You know, I've got a lot of books that talk about that, that so that externalises the anxiety and that anxiety can wear many disguises, whether it's the disguise of, you know, you can't go to school or you can't go to bed on your own. Um, so teaching kids to identify that this is anxiety. Yeah. Um, and, and how to work with that, you know, teaching them to be the boss of their their anxiety, yeah. I think, is the most thing. You mentioned uh, attachment before, <clears throat> and I was I was wondering, do do you dabble much in the attachment theory, and and how that's impacted with kids growing up, and then their relationship with their parents, and and stuff like that, or is it more broader than that? Well, probably a bit more broader. But having said that, many of the kids I work with have fractured attachments. 
or insecure attachments. So it may be that a parent's left or a parent's been in and out or that mum or dad have their own mental health issues. Mm. So, you know, as you know, as a social worker, we can become appropriately an attachment figure for the client, whether it be the child or, or even an adult. We can, um, you know, help them, you know, repair that. You know, we can be that positive role model and that positive attachment so, yeah, look, I guess therapy with kids is all about engagement and becoming that sort of attachment figure, I guess. I mean, I guess you've got to be careful working with parents. And I think parents know. They'll say something like, look, I know my mental health has affected my parenting or my relationship with my child. Or, I mean, I think just being very clear with parents that of what your role is, um, that you know, you're not there to replace them or anything like that, that you can become that significant. Yeah. yeah. If you can attach to a figure. I mean, it'd be like your kids going to childcare when my kids still talk about their childcare as, you know, how that was such a positive in their life. Yeah. How do you how do you approach a um a child that's really struggling to open up? Like you can't really break through that barrier. And um, like what's some of the strategies that you use? Yeah, look hard. Um and I, I guess you've got to not make it about yourself. Like some therapists might be like, oh, God, I'm just not good enough or I can't do this or imposter syndrome might creep in. You know, I shouldn't be working with kids or whatever. A lot of the time for kids it's just about building trust and it may be that they've had other people in their life who have tried too hard or have let them down. So, yeah, look, the first two or three sessions could be playing Jenga or, you know, or yeah, just, I guess, a bit more hands-on doing some colouring, um, yeah. you know. get And even, I guess, understanding that you may not get into the therapy until many sessions in. So it might be talking about footy for the whole <laughs> first session and, and, I don't know, watching some stuff on YouTube with them. And, and it's about speaking their language too. Mm. You know, that might be like, I want to play this game with you and you might be like, what? It's not really therapy. Um, but engagement, you know, as you know, being a social worker, we're first and foremost about engagement, connection, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, and look, I've had kids who I can't break through, but parents say they still want to come. Mm. So you're like, let's persist. Yeah. So, and I guess there's, there's a moment in time where they start to open up and it might take a right. long time and then they all of a sudden just go, okay, it's a safe space here. I can start to talk. That's right. But some kids don't even get it as well. Mm. You know, they might be like, I just feel worried about going to school. And if you're like, well, why? Tell me why. What's happening at school? There may be nothing. It just may be that they were used to having mum around because mum was home for six months in lockdown. And, you know, they were at home in their little cocoon and now they've got to go out into the world. You know, you and I have got the language for that, but they don't. Yeah. it's just like I just don't want to go to school. So sometimes get, trying to get kids to open up about why things are so, it's very hard. You know, I guess yeah. myself as an adult, like I said, I, I didn't understand a lot of the stuff I went through as a child until I became an adult. So, mm. And even so again, guess, even then as a parent as well, when you become a parent, things yes. go, oh, okay, the penny drops as well for so that right. kind of thing. So I guess in that situation, sitting and colouring, being that support, you know, because you need, mm. need to show the child that you're going to be there no matter what. Yeah. Oh, this is too hard. She's going to leave me. She's not going to see me anymore. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And you mentioned like you, you've got some group-based programs as well, so you might transition some kids across to the group-based yeah. stuff. Is that the mindfulness stuff that you're talking about or is that something different? No, so that's kids' mindfulness. Yeah. So let's explore that. Like tell us all about kids' mindfulness because on Mindful Men, I love mindfulness-based practice. It's really helped me yeah. as an adult. But how yes. do you do it with kids? Yeah, talk us through that. 
So I started Kids Mindfulness uh, mid-2018, uh, so just a very brief history. I'd lost some funding at the start of 2018. So I had, there was this funding where clients were fully funded and there was no gap to pay. So the government withdrew that funding and I'd had that funding since 2011. So for seven years, I'd seen many, many clients under that funding and they withdrew that funding. And so I lost overnight, pretty much I lost most of my clients. Um, so I was at risk of my business closing down. And I literally woke up one day and thought, I'm just going to run a group program. So I started with four kids. And I had no idea what I was doing. I'd done a Buddhist retreat two years before. I thought, oh, we did a bit of breathing. We laid down and we had a bit of quiet time and, and I don't know, I'll just do something. So I had a few kids I was seeing at the time and I just said to their parents, look, throw 20 bucks at me and I'll um I'll put your kids through this group. And I had, you know, obviously a loose program that I sent out to them. It went really well and then before long I'd filled it. I had eight kids and then within a month I had two groups and then three groups and then four groups and it just went berserk basically and so I, I guess I rejigged and remodeled the program over time and I started to get some more difficult presentations so kids with ADHD kids mm -hmm. with autism were coming to the program so I was very out of my depth there for a little bit but I went in the yoga uh, kids yoga course which kind of taught me how to structure my program I guess just short sharp activities so I kind of restructured the program and then it just took off from there. It was so successful and I was seeing such um, fantastic results with kids. So it run, at the moment it's only running three days a week. Uh, it was running four days a week. So since going back after COVID, numbers are down a little bit. But what do we do in class? So there's a lot of breath work. So just mm -hmm. teach kids simple, you know, breathing exercises, things like, you know, five-finger breathing, you know, breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. So just that, so something as simple as that basically, um, some little bite-sized pieces of breath work. Um, we do a little bit of basic yoga. Uh, we do some education. So it's a really important part of the program. Um, so it is a CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy-based program, so we do a little bit of CBT, educational mindfulness um, education. So each class has a theme. So we might do thoughts one week, emotions next, positive affirmations, gratitude, kindness, um, compassion, impermanence. Um, so there is a bit of a Buddhist leaning, but it's not religious or anything like that. So the education component, we read a book or watch a short video, um, and then I take them through a guided meditation, and then we do a bit of a fun activity at the end. So it's 60 minutes. Um, so I've got a program that I've written up and I now sell that program to other health professionals and teach them um, how to, to run it as well. So I've put 170 kids through over four years. So we did have a few breaks over COVID, which was very, very sad. Um, and interestingly enough, you'll, you'll love hearing this, my mental health, not love hearing that my mental health deteriorated, but it's really interesting. In fact, my mental health deteriorated markedly when I wasn't teaching the program. Mm, yeah. So, I mean, obviously we're in lockdown and stuff as well, but teaching the program just fills my cup because you've got these little beautiful innocent kids aged from 4 to 12 who are just, many of them just clean slates and they just hang on every word and just love you know everything that you teach them so yeah kids are really receptive to the program 
Wonderful. And, and do you do like certain age groups or is it just a mixed bag of any kids? Well, look, I would love to. I think ideally it'd be good to do sort of four to eight and then, you know, mm-hmm. nine to 12, but I just don't have the time. So I do do, you know, sort of prep, which I think that's our first year of school, prep to grade six, which, you know, it's not ideal, but it works. You know, you have mm-hmm. older kids role modelling to the younger kids. Some of the content might be a bit young for the old kids and a bit old for the younger kids, if that sort of makes sense. So when yeah. I teach others how to run the program, I do recommend if they can having like a junior and a, an older group. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, look, it works. It works fine. So what about with like you said that you um, even some other therapists, you started to train other therapists yeah. in, in the program. How has that taken off? Like how what's been the, the, I guess, the response from other therapists in the program? Well, when I first started running and it was interesting, it's that old cliche of first they'll criticise you and then they'll join you. So I had <laughs> a couple of psychologists message me and say, uh, why are you teaching kids meditation? Like are you, why are you accredited? Are you, should you be doing this? And I said, well, meditation's actually it's an unaccredited field. There's no, you don't need to be accredited to teach meditation. And I said, it's just targeted relaxation strategies. It's a guided meditation. It's basically all I'm doing. So I think people were very curious about what I was doing because I was posting a lot of marketing videos and stuff. So, look, you know, I don't think they were being critical. I think they were just kind of like, what's going on here? Why are you doing this? Because it's, you know, I think we've moved forward a lot with with mental health and different strategies and, and all that sort of stuff, but it was still a bit outside the box, I guess, four years ago. But then people were interested, like, I would love to do this. You're willing to sell the program? And I wasn't happy just to sell the program. I wanted to teach others. I wanted to show them what to do. So I run a two-day course a couple of times a year where I put people through and they actually get to participate, like they're the kids on the teacher in four classes, uh, which is very fun. And um, so I teach them basic CBT, I teach them mindfulness education, I teach them a bit about basic meditation and breath work. So I guess there's a bit of education. I teach them about attachment, um, therapeutic alliance and connection and that sort of stuff and the value of group work. Um, So with that, I think I've put 36 people through. We had to cancel a couple of those courses over lockdown. So 36 people are now running their own kids' mindfulness meditation programs or preparing to, or they're running them in schools, childcare centres and all that sort of stuff as well. So I've got a little closed group on Facebook where we share ideas and support each other. Sounds wonderful. Yeah. It is wonderful. And I had people say, oh, my God, like you're sharing your, I don't know, your intellectual property. How can you feel comfortable about that? And I said, oh, look, honestly, there's enough to go around. I said, Mm. most terms I've got a wait list. I want hundreds of kids to get this program. You know, I grew up having no idea, you know, how to deal with the stuff I was going through. You can teach kids these very natural strategies, you know, teach kids that their breath is always there, you know, that they can um, not pay attention to their thoughts if their thoughts are troubling, you know, that they can let them go. You know, if we can teach um, kids compassion and empathy and um, teach them basic meditation, you know, we're going to be equipping them, you know, for a better adolescence to be better adults. And, yeah, I'm really passionate about that. So I'm like, I'll just train as many people as possible to spread the word. Like it's, yeah, it's what it's all about. I love that sharing because you mentioned wait lists and there's a lot of wait lists around the country mm-hmm. for mental health services. Yeah. I've got I've got lots of availability if anybody wants to click me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, yeah, like, and 
but sharing it is a great way just to get more people through the practice and and you know you'll still have your wait list but other people can then right. fill up fill up their books and say you know i've got this capacity to do this amazing stuff and yes. then connect with you in your closed facebook group and, and share your word as well like through right. their practices i think it's a really wonderful thing you're doing yeah no thank you yeah i love it it's look Eventually, my plan is to uh, not do one-on-one work because mm. I've I've done this work for twenty-eight years. So after lockdown, I was very, very burnt out um, because I remained open. I have a lot of suicidal clients, so I was able to remain open. I did a lot of telehealth. The clinic was still open for high-risk clients, so I was very, very burnt out. But that's the core of my work, you know, the one-on-one work. Um, but eventually I will let that go. I'll employ someone and I'll just do the group work yeah. because I just love it so much. And the relationship I have with the kids, you know, it's a safe space for them. Um, lots of kids open up in the group environment. You know, groups are wonderful because you might have some difficult presentations and then you've got other kids who are role modelling appropriate behaviours and then those kids rise to that you know and it's just it's a great environment to work in yeah love it yeah what about with some of the parents so like we often think about parenting and and we've talked a little bit about it today like about you know we grew up in times where we didn't necessarily have that uh, that parental figure that really nurtured us and and sheltered us from the trauma that we did experience and 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 they did the best that they could with the tools that they had on hand so for, for parents in there, I've, I've heard in the last few years this concept around good enough parenting mm-hmm. and, and and letting go of being this perfect parent and sometimes, you know, acknowledging when we get it wrong and being okay with getting it wrong. What's your thoughts on on this and how can parents kind of move away from helicopter parenting and just give themselves a break? Absolutely. And I love that good enough parenting term. Um, I use that a lot with parents. I think it's just so important that we do the best that we can at the time. And I think it's so important to be honest with your kids. I, I'm sorry I got it wrong today. You know, I shouldn't have yelled. I'm going to do better tomorrow. Um, you know, we talk a lot about, um, well, there's a lot of talk in the past about kids respecting elders. We need to give kids the respect as well. It's that mutual respect, I think, which is which is so important. So teaching parents that if they're calm, they can share their calm with with their children. So, yeah, a lot of the time we, I guess we reparent ourselves when we parent our children. You know, it's it's so hard, such a hard job, and I think teaching parents to have that self-compassion and, you know, you talk about the helicopter parenting. Like I think it's so important to get across to parents that we're teaching kids to be adults. You know, mm. we're not raising kids to be kids. Like I know they're kids, but the end goal is for them to be an independent adult. So, yeah, giving kids that little bit of freedom and trust and, yeah, having faith in your parenting that what the way you've parented is going to, yeah, make your kids confident and independent and give them the skills that that they need, I think. I think we, we, we can project a lot of our own stuff onto our kids. Yeah. Which is hard and you often don't know that you're doing it. Mm, that's like you go on auto. Yeah, oh, that's right, yeah. And so on that note, how do you maintain being a mum? Like when you were, you know, going through this and so you'd go to work, be the therapist, be the social worker, come home, be the mum. How do you, did you balance that? Like instead of being the therapist at home, but also not being too much of a mum, like how did you balance all that? Well, I think at times, Simon, I haven't done a great job of that. 
and I think really acknowledging that and being aware. So, you know, there's times where I was really working hard to build my practice up and I was working on the phones on Beyond Blue and I was also doing private practice working two or three nights a week and you'd see the cracks. You'd see mm. the kids doing yeah, you get this sense of, my God, I'm, I'm helping others more than I'm helping my own kids. So I think as soon as you acknowledge something, you can make a change. Like I know, look, awareness doesn't always equal behaviour change, but as soon as you can acknowledge, then the opportunity is there to make a change. So I think owning it and then stripping back, and I think that's the beauty of private practice. You know, if your kids are struggling, like, you know, kids last year's of school, I'd, I'd strip back. Um, my work hours to be more available for mm. kids. So, you know, you've got that ability to do that. But, again, having that kind of self-compassion and just being honest with your kids I think is really important. And, yeah, yeah back to the good enough parenting or good enough mother. Yeah, that's right. And and I guess, like, you know, that that close work you do with the parents that come into your clinic as well is that they might have not got it right as well, but then you working with them and then working with the children as well can create yeah. recreate the team environment that they've probably been missing in their homes. That's right. And I think a lot of parents just need that reassurance mm. that they're on the right track. Yeah, a lot of parents come into me, particularly with things like sleep. Oh, okay, yep. Oh, I'm doing that anyway or, you know. So, and with anxiety, I think it's very hard. It's a fine line between pushing kids to do stuff and avoidance. So just helping parents around, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Well. Now you've got you're you're on the socials and you've got your YouTube channel as well. I'd love you to to talk us through your socials because because not many therapists are so actively on yeah. social media <laughs> and ha- and particularly have their own YouTube. I think we're one of a few. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it is- YouTube come about um, in lockdown. So my poor and look, I live and work in the same community, which is good but it can have its um negatives as well so during lockdown i'd run into my kids mindfulness kids in the supermarket and they'd come up and hug me in the middle of a pandemic <laughs> um and oh you know i miss kids mindfulness so i created a, a kids mindfulness youtube channel so it's literally me like play school just doing the class to the screen for my kids mindfulness kids so that's kind of the extent of my youtube channel so just kids mindfulness meditations i think it's called kids mindfulness something like that so yeah I think there's about 10 episodes on there so it was specifically for my kids mindfulness kids um so that they you know weren't missing out I had a lot of requests to do zoom classes but I just couldn't bring myself to do it I just Mm. thought you know 10 kids on zoom you know not lying down (laughs) and I just thought I wouldn't be able to let go there you go that's not a very good mindfulness practice stress me out so I just created the, the um, YouTube channel. I also created my kids' mindfulness podcast. Yeah, talk, or talk us through the podcast. I haven't haven't heard the podcast yet, but I have seen the yeah. YouTube. So look, channel. I've got two podcasts. Um, the adult one's inactive. I haven't um, added anything to that for a couple of years. So that the adult one is Mindful Life podcast, which I created sort of back in two thousand and nineteen. So that one's a bit quiet. I just haven't had the time to add to it. But the kids' mindfulness one, uh, again, I created in lockdown because kids were missing me so much. So I just basically am reading out my guided meditations that I read in class with a bit of background music and the odd dog bark or door bang or whatever <laughs> because it's just on my phone. It's nothing too professional. And so I created it for my kids' mindfulness kids and then it went viral and I had people contacting me, um, asking me if I wanted to improve the sound quality and I'm just like, honestly, it's not anything. It's just for fun. Like it's just for the kids I work with. 
Um, so it's done really well. It's got, had like 350,000 downloads. Wow. Um, I think that's because kids just listen to it on repeat. Um, you know, I've got kids that tell me they've listened to the same episode, you know, 100 times or whatever. So, yeah, really popular and they're constantly asking me to add to it. So kids I work with pester me all the time to add to it. So I just haven't had the time. So that's, um, yeah, just to help kids with sleep basically and to be calm and to relax. Um, yeah, so there's some CBT strategies in that but mainly some mindfulness and breathing techniques. So things like, you know, you're in a, you're in a fairy forest and, um, so just encouraging them to use their imagination and to relax their bodies, do some breathing. Yeah, I really love the concept around the sleep stuff because we listen to ABC podcasts or something at yeah. night time. I'll lay in bed with Gus and help him drift off to sleep as well. Yeah. And it's really, and I'm sitting there actually thinking, oh, this is really cool. Like, and I'm listening to it as a dad, and it's yeah, it's well, a really cool. Say thing. they do listen to it. So there's one I've um I've done called Backpack of Worries where they just have to visualize their worries in a backpack and then they just toss them out to the wind. And I've had a few parents say, my God, that really helped me in lockdown. And I'm like, oh, that's great. It was designed for kids, but if it helped you. So and that's really good because then parents can sort of say to the kids, your mummy found that really helpful and have those discussions which I could never have imagined, you know, my mother having those discussions with me because she just didn't have that knowledge. So I think we have come a long way. And, you know, with this work I do with the kids, with mindfulness, I'm preaching to the choir. Like I think the parents the parents bring their kids because they believe in it. So, and look, there is a lot of evidence, as you probably know, to suggest that mindfulness and meditation, um, you know, it's evidence-based. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that it is very helpful, you know, with pain, with anxiety, mm. um, you know, with depression and, you know, lots of other stuff, just well-being, just day-to-day life, you know, meditate mm. down itself. Um, so I think it can be very helpful, you know, for everyone. Yeah. Now your private practice, you we've talked a lot about kids, but before we head off, you do yep. work with adults as well? I do, yeah. So look, most of my work, not most, look, it's probably half-half. Um, yeah, I work with lots of adults as well. So I take my referrals from GPs um, because I'm accredited mental health social worker. I can work under Medicare and I also see clients under NDIS as well. I've phased out TAC work cover victims of crime simply because they're very slow payers. Yeah. So okay. It's just really hard to keep chasing up money, basically. That's just a whole, you know, admin thing. I mean, we are a business as well. Yeah, so mainly Medicare private clients and NDIS. And yeah. look, incidentally, my kids' mindfulness program is now um, 70% NDIS-funded kids. Yeah. So the client group has really changed, which has been really interesting. Um, so the classes can be a challenge to teach sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> now, for anybody who's not sure what NDIS is, can you give us a quick run-through of, of what it is very yep. broadly? I have talked about it on the show, but if this is the first time someone's tuning in and you know, what's some of the, I guess, some of the disabilities that, that you, you work with particularly? So, look, I'm no expert on NDIS. And I know you've got a background in working with the NDIS, so I'm going to give a very broad summary. Um, so, look, NDIS is the National Disability Insurance Scheme. So it's funding for people with a disability, whether it be physical or cognitive. So I can basically work with self or plan managed clients. So there's different ways clients can be funded. I can't manage, I can't work with agency managed clients because I'm not agency registered. I don't even know if that's the right language to use. Yep, close enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, self and plan managed, I can work with. And yeah, so basically with self managed, the client 
will pay me and they'll be reimbursed and then plan manager, I have to send my invoices to the plan manager. So I mainly have kids who have autism coming in under the NDIS, but there's lots and lots of comorbidities. So these kids may have ADHD, they might have um, some obsessive compulsive behaviours as well, depression and anxiety. I also get a lot of kids with ADHD as well. So kids can come in um, privately to the program where they just pay you know, upfront, out of pocket, or they can come in under a mental health care plan where mm-hmm. Medicare will pay for about half, um, which is great news for parents because, you know, Medicare can fund half of the, the um, Kids Mindfulness Program and then obviously NDIS is fully funded. Yeah, yeah. And for any parents who are out there who haven't accessed a mental health care plan, they can just yeah. get a referral from their GP, can they? Sure, yeah. So a referral mental health care plan is kind of the same thing. You go along to your GP um, with your child, talk about what the difficulties are that your child's presenting with. And with that mental health care plan, that will give the child 20 counselling sessions currently because the sessions have been increased under COVID. <laughs> so 20 one-on-one sessions and 10 group work sessions. So the rebate for one-on-one is $79.05 and then the rebate for group is, I think, $22. Yeah, so, wonderful. Yes, yeah, so it's about half back. Yeah. yeah, and that's adults as well, adults. Obviously. Yeah, adults as well. Yeah, so a lot of, it's a little known fact that your mental health care plan can give you group work rebates. Mm, yeah. That. Yeah, wonderful. And do you have like any group programs for adults or is it just kids? I have done in the past, not as popular. And look, it's hard. I don't know if you've ever run groups or you plan to, but it can be hard getting them off the ground and mm-hmm. you might get two or three people. And so the Kids Mindfulness is very, very established. It runs by the term and it just kind of turns over like clockwork. I guess lots of kids stay on. I get new kids coming in. Yeah, it can be quite hard to kind of get groups up and running for adults. And also you've got to sort of make it worth your while. Again, yep. running by yeah, age. Definitely. I have I have run businesses. I've run, I'm sorry, I've run groups before. I have run retreats and that sort of stuff. But, again, it's finding the time. <laughs> yeah, and, and you mentioned like running a business as well, um, social work. There's a lot of chat in the social work space, particularly when I was going through uni, like that social workers aren't in it for the income, they're in it for the outcome. And as a private practice owner, you're you are in it for the income because that's how you pay your mortgage and put food yeah. on the table and put clothes on your back as well. Briefly, without opening up another can of worms, <laughs> what's your thoughts on that? Like, I, I see income as a bit of a form of self care, and without income, we can't be looking after ourselves and our families. Absolutely. What's your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, look, I think it it can be controversial, and sometimes you are chasing clients for fees and you know, clients can become quite annoyed. Yeah, it's about finding that balance, I guess. And look, maybe it's about getting admin to deal with that. <laughs> Passing that off to someone else. But look, I'm very clear. I have, um, you know, terms of service that clients need to agree to and, and a few things in place, you know, around prepayments and and stuff. But it's it's very, it's a very difficult subject and it's one that creates a lot of anxiety. Mm. You know, when you're having to chase clients for money. So um, I think, yeah, if you set up your processes early and you're very clear from the start, but value what you do, yeah. you know, like there's so many memes that go around that that talk about, you know, people sort of say, is that what you charge for an hour? Well, no, that's what I'm charging for my four-year degree plus my mm. 32 years of experience. You know, so I think if your fees are really low, people might be like, mm this person really that good like 
And sometimes you hear someone's fees, are, I don't know, like something that seems crazy, like $500 an hour, and you think, shit, they must be good. They must be hard to get into. <laughs> and I think, you know, it's so important to to value what you do and your own expertise and, you know, what what you've accumulated in terms of your, you know, experience and knowledge. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you've got to pay your bills. You know, my rent for my commercial lease, and this is, it's a cheap one where I am, it's 33000 a year. Wow. So that's cheap. There's some yeah. that are people that have huge clinics are paying fifty to seventy thousand a year. So Simon, stick to your telehealth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think I will for a little while. I, I, I mean, I'm lucky I can, you know, if you can sub if you can sublet a room, you know, that makes a difference because you've got yeah. some costs. But at the end of the day, you know, there's always talk about um, GPs who don't bulk bill anymore. Well, I understand why because they've got so many overheads. Yeah. The time you pay for everything, um, you're not left with very much. So, yeah. look, you're love- right. We don't get into this for the money, but you still need to make a living. Yeah, and I think if we don't shy away from it, as you said, set up your practice prop, you know, from the start, be, you know, value your worth as well as a person, yeah. as a as a person and as a therapist and, and a professional. And and if people don't want to pay it, they just find someone where they will pay it. And then other people That's will right. come and go, yeah, I'm happy to pay this because you're providing an amazing service that I yes. need specifically for me. Marianne, I really enjoyed this. We could talk all day. I love talking to social workers. <laughs> and once we start, we, we tend not to stop. Um yeah. yeah, plug your business. Where can people find you, like online? Sure. And, and so um, Mindful Life Wellness, as you said, uh, I have socials, so Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, under that handle, Mindful Life Wellness. Um, got kids podcast, kids mindfulness meditations, a podcast for kids. Yeah, you can find me there. Awesome. And we'll put the links in the show notes so that people can just you right. know, click click on it and then they go straight to that. The last thing I like to ask all my guests is to plug something yeah. that makes you feel good. And it's a bit of a pay it forward moment where you can give what's making you feel good to somebody else and then they can feel good as well. Oh, at the moment, Pilates. I've just discovered Pilates with my daughter. So um, I'll plug Gia Pilates, which is next door to my business. Um, <laughs> cool. so she's, I guess she's you know, someone in my building who's running a small business as well. Yeah, so enjoying moving my body mindfully, you know, that taking an hour out of my my day just to um, focus on myself. I love it. I love it. I I did do Pilates for a while and men's yoga as well. And it's really, it is a really a healing process because I had a bit of a back issue at the time, which came out of my burnout, actually. They couldn't diagnose what it was. And so through Pilates and men's yoga, I was able to, to iron that part out of my back that was really causing me a lot of grief. So I, yeah, I plug it as well. It's a great, it's a great great. technique. It's natural. It's fantastic. Excellent. Well, thank you, Simon. Great talking to you. Yeah, it was great to talk to you. And um, yeah, we'll we'll keep in touch and see how things yeah. are going. And and yeah, thanks for coming on. Excellent. All the very best with um Mindful Men. Well, that's a wrap for today's episode, and I hope you got some value from it. If anything triggered your mental health today, please reach out to your support networks. Also, if you loved what you heard, be sure to subscribe to the show and share it with your mates. For more from Mindful Men, you can check us out on Instagram and YouTube, and I'll throw the links to these pages in the show notes below. But until next time, stay mindful.